right, good morning, fellowship. How's everybody doing? Uh, welcome as well to those joining us online and down in our F3 service. Uh, so glad you guys are here with us. Um, right about now, thousands and thousands of speakers, preachers, and teachers are emphasizing the year 1776. Many of them might be sharing stories about the, the Revolutionary War or maybe uh, recapping the history of the American flag because it was no doubt an exciting time for the people of this nation and as we continue to celebrate that independence. But it's kind of crazy to think that less than a hundred years later, brother would be fighting brother in the Civil War. If you ever happen to find yourself uh, 58 minutes into the movie National Treasure 2, you'd hear Nicolas Cage phrase it this way, people used to say, the United States are, it wasn't until the Civil War ended people started saying the United States is. It was under Lincoln that we became one nation. You see, this country has gone through a lot of seasons. Seasons of tremendous prosperity, seasons of suffering, all in our short history. And things continue to change as different political and social climates determine what flags are worth waving, what values are worth saving. But our comfort then, amidst this never-ending discourse, is the word of the Lord, because it speaks to these seasons without ever changing. For example, there's a very poetic book uh, in God's Old Testament. This is a wisdom book written by a deep thinker that says this, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die a time to plant, and a time to uproot what is planted. Now, we don't have time to unpack that bad boy. That's only a couple verses out of Ecclesiastes. But the point is, God's been speaking uh, towards this season of life, the seasons we can face for a while now. Much later in the New Testament, Paul, uh, a man whose background in the faith we've been learning a lot about in our sermon series on Acts, he writes to the church in Galatia, a church greatly in need of clarity, and says this, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We could shoot the breeze for hours over that passage. Uh, we could detail all the reasons we have going on right now to become weary. I think it's all too easy with the device in our pockets to get weary. I don't know if you've noticed that, but our, our smartphones do a very good job of making us aware of everything, but wise about nothing. Let's not become weary in, in what we're after here. Do we have a solid faith in God's providence, like that proper time to which Paul is referring? A season in which God will provide. Maybe it's an opportunity to trust him. Maybe it's an opportunity to celebrate him and be rewarded by his blessings. But the point is, in whatever season we find ourselves, it turns out that we can not only trust that God is somehow good, which he is, but we can also be ready to use his word effectively, no matter the circumstance. So before we jump back into our sermon series with Acts chapter 18, please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. There's a verse in 2 Timothy that's going to take our viewing of Acts 18 from black and white to vivid color. 
Over the next two weeks, I'm excited to unpack Acts 18 with you, but there's a frame of reference Paul gives us that I'd like to use to do so. Second Timothy, we're going to be at the end of chapter 3. Uh, this is a book of discipleship. It holds some of Paul's final words as he disciples a younger man that he hopes to kind of be his successor. So from Jedi master to Padawan, we have Paul's urgency, his final call. What does he want Timothy to know? There's a verse here uh, worth clinging to in general because it validates every other passage across every other book, and that's 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 16, which says this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for four things, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That means for us, there's not a single portion of our Bible worth throwing out or neglecting. It's all for our benefit. Detailed here in this context, he tells Timothy, it's, our, it's for our benefit in the realm of teaching, rebuking us, correcting, training us. I often encourage our, our students downstairs in youth ministry to wrestle with Scripture. That's a, a common phrase in Christian circles, wrestle with Scripture. Well, this is what that actually means. This is what it can look like. Let God's Word do these things, because none of us are perfect at it. Now, is that the passage that's going to take Acts 18 from black and white to vivid color? Not quite. Uh, by that logic, it should do that to all of the Bible. Instead, I want to focus on what Paul does uh, two verses later that will launch us into our, our time this morning. So look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. He continues to write Timothy, and he says this, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That means twice in four verses, Paul says the exact same thing, except in reverse order, and this time he includes the phrase, be ready in season and out of season. There, there's an emphasis there. Here are the two ideas uh, next to each other. Uh, God's word, according to the end of 2 Timothy 3, is for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And then he immediately refers back to that and says, Timothy is to be ready in season and out. And he lists them correcting, rebuking, teaching. Now, we don't know Paul's exact frame of mind, but because of the context, there's every linguistic indication that he is detailing what it should mean to be trained in God's word. Be ready in season and out. That, that word season, the Greek word eukairos, means timely or opportunely. So what he's saying essentially is be ready when it's easy and when it's not. When the opportunity to present godly truth to somebody else is presented on a silver platter, take it. And also when it's never felt more inopportune, when it's hard. Training in righteousness so that you're equipped, be it a season of opportunity or a season of idleness. So go ahead and turn to Acts 18, and let's cover this chapter with that in mind, because we're going to see Paul's life in and out of season a bit. We're going to affirm this morning that everything that happens in the Christian life can qualify a person for ministry. We get to see why Paul has every right to say what he said to Timothy. This passage is going to bring out four things Paul does, 
four things we ought to consider when it comes to our own seasons of life. So we have a lot of verses to get through, and you'll see the points of application present themselves as we read. The first thing we see from Paul, uh, and your sermon notes reflect this, is that he's waiting well. Waiting well. Look at the first four verses uh, of this passage, Acts 18. He says, it says, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was the emperor at the time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. And we'll stop right there for a second. So prior to Corinth, this this Acts 17 stuff, uh, he was in Athens tackling the issues of idols, tackling the issues of false gods. And here we have this sort of A-team of Christian tent makers assembling because Paul's journey has brought him here. And Aquila and his wife have been expelled from Rome due to the emperor's distaste for Jews. Uh, Most scholars believe that the exact reason for the Jewish removal in Rome at this time was because of the new teachings of Christ. Some scholars believe it was was a a different, uh, unknown Jewish agitator. Somebody else was stirring the pot a little bit, but regardless, it was religiously motivated. Rome wanted nothing to do with the religious movement. So we have these three believers waiting well. They're they're seemingly replanted in Corinth. And Luke specifies they share not just a love for the Lord, but a skilled vocation. So becoming roommates was a no-brainer. We're here. Let's make the most of it together. See, God has a purpose for whatever we're doing. Uh, There's no such thing as an off-the-clock Christian because there's no such thing as an off-the-clock God. He is working and capable of using it. And furthermore, we can be trained, like Paul, in the Word of God to such a degree that we consider everything that happens in the Christian life further qualification for ministry. That perspective can allow us, in season and out, to use the Word of God effectively. And for a lot of us, that's going to start like this, with waiting well. Lord, what's next? Now, I do want to clarify one thing real quick. The Holy Spirit is technically what qualifies us for ministry in the first place. He he is how we are able. He is how we are capable. But with that, the Lord uses whatever is going on in our lives as an opportunity to trust and rely on that spirit. It has a purpose. We notice after waiting well that Paul goes all in on a season of opportunity. That brings us to the second point of the passage. He's working with passion. Working with passion. Look at verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But, verse 6, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Then he left there. He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. He was a worshiper of God whose house was right next to the synagogue. Crispus, who happened to be the leader of the synagogue at the time, believed in the Lord with all his household. 
And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Paul's working with passion. And we notice, as he is working vigorously, he's not forcing doors open either. There's a point of application here for us, and that is we can try the doors of opportunity and see which ones the Lord flings wide open. Because the rejection of the Jews qualified Paul to go, in this case, quite literally next door. It says he, he shook his garments, that's an act of ridding himself of their filth, and heads to those who will listen. The rejection of the gospel, which is something that can often bring discouragement or doubt, simply led to the presentation of the gospel elsewhere. That's impressive. If Taylor Swift can shake it off, you better believe Paul could. He was so passionate. He was so passionate that the problems he encountered never impacted the approach. He worked heartily when it came to sharing about Jesus. That idea of working heartily is a biblical concept. Paul writes to the church in Colossians. He says, whatever you do, do it heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So working with passion. But with that in mind, do we put our nose to the grindstone and, and work, work, work? Is that, what, is that what Paul did? Is that how the Lord has chosen to operate? Does he wind us up and let us loose and then we wander back to him when we're weary to, to reset again? We can certainly live that way. But that's not the case because our God is a God of assurance along the way. The third thing the passage brings us, watching for God. Watching for God. Look at verse 9. Many of your Bibles will have this in red letters because we hear from the Lord himself. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And what's the result of hearing that? Verse 11, he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now what's interesting about our author Luke's detailing here uh, is that verse 9 comes after great news. So as Luke accounts for all of these things, in good acts fashion, there, there's a positive impact for the body of Christ and then the potential consequence. Be ready in season and out of season. You see, Paul would know that since a whole household believed, there could be a spiritual attack waiting to happen. Uh, spiritual wars being waged as these things are happening. Spiritual fatigue could be setting in. The text is clear, it indicates that's what's happening. And even more so, God knew what Paul was wrestling with internally. So look at verse 9. We hear from him. God's words mean Paul was afraid. It means he was fatigued. He was ready to be silenced. You see, the Lord, he does a very good job of this, is addressing the heart of the matter and not just the matter itself. This is a vision addressing intrapersonal conflict, conflict within Paul is not just at war with persecution, he's at war with himself. And the reminder is, you have me and you have my people. That is who God has given. Those are, are two things that come out of that, that 
uh, piece of scripture. And I'd like to throw a third thing in there. If you ever get a chance to read Romans chapter 7, I highly encourage you to do so because we can learn a lot about that intrapersonal conflict that Paul is feeling. But what we have here is a powerful reminder to cling to God's promises. You have me, you have my people. We can cling to God's promises. What has he said for us? It's not about waiting for the right dream. It's about opening our Bible and learning how to recognize when that truth is at work in our life. Because we have no right to consider God silent when our Bibles are closed. Justin Peters once put it this way, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. Because this is his voice. This is how he has chosen to communicate to us. God's calm voice in a world of screaming makes all the difference. This brings us to the the largest portion of this chapter. Uh, We see Paul, lastly, withstanding the waves. We're going to spend a decent amount of time here, starting in verse 12, withstanding the waves. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, verse 12, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. We'll stop right there for a second. You can picture this scene. The Jews rise up against him in classic Acts fashion. And it's so funny that Paul's about to open his mouth. He's about to give a defense. And then Gallio says, it's not needed because I don't care. Settle it amongst yourselves. If this was something that mattered, if it had to do with a vicious crime or, or what I've been dealing with, governmentally speaking, maybe I'd address it. But you need to figure this out amongst yourselves. I'm unwilling, I'm unwilling to be a judge on these matters. Look at verse 16. So he drove them away from the judgment seat they brought him to. Verse 17, here's a, a switch. And they all took hold of uh, Sosthenes, the the leader of the synagogue, and they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things either. Verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were our tent makers Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea, Luke details that Paul had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow up to that point. Then they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. He himself entered the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews. This time, these Jews asked him to stay longer, but he did not consent. Verse 21, taking leave of them, saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up. He greeted the church. Then he goes down to Antioch, and having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And we're going to stop there for this morning. Now, there's a lot of people involved here, okay? A lot of waves to withstand, including 
this Sosthenes guy, this new synagogue leader, which is interesting to note because it suggests Crispus, the, the previous leader in verse 8, left his post after accepting Christ. And verse 17 is just brutal because the mob, the mob needs a sacrifice, evidently. And we see Luke's brevity as he details all the things that are happening. He would clearly rather explain to us Paul's travels. And we can learn that Paul went to great lengths to become all things to all people by embracing uh, a Nazarite vow up to this point. So the word Nazarite literally means uh, devoted and untrimmed. So this Nazarite vow, it has nothing to do with the town of Nazareth and everything to do with an expression of devotion to God. And that's something that Paul was doing. You see, he was very good at bridging the gap between old covenant expectations and people's tradition and teaching them the new covenant of grace and who Jesus is. But this passage, the waves to withstand, political discourse colliding with the people of Christ. Who would have thought, right? Political discourse colliding with the people of Christ. We see the governing officials toss the issue aside. This is rather unique. It's not an interaction of persecution. It's an interaction of dissolution. Figure it out. We're not touching it. We need to know that the government has been turning its back on religious matters for centuries. Daryl Bach in his commentary on the book of Acts puts it this way. Do not confuse the nation you were born in with the holy nation to which you belong. Luke proves the government either doesn't care or cannot stop God's plan. And that's encouraging. Where is our ultimate citizenship? Where is our ultimate allegiance? Paul, after going through all this, he reaches a, a personal conclusion in verse 21, if you want to look at that. He, he says to the people who want him to stay, this is Jesus-esque, I will return to you again if God wills. So things are going wonderfully, and he's leaving. And he could have said, oh yeah, I'll be back. I promise you, I'll be back. I, I think I, I would be tempted to be like, you better, of course I'm coming back. You kidding me? This is great. I can't wait to come back. I promise you. Instead, we see that a solid understanding of God establishes a realistic understanding of what's to come. I will come back if the Lord wills. Earlier, I mentioned in Acts 18, uh, the beginning starts off with this sort of A-team of, of Christian tent makers, these Christians ready for whatever's next. I don't know how many of you uh, remember Mr. T or the hit show The A-Team uh, that aired from 1983 to 1987. But Mr. T would pity the fool that makes a promise to his wife about the future without including the phrase, Lord willing, because it's an understanding of God. Our passage ends at the end of verse 23 with the continuation of the triumph of the gospel. This is one of Luke's favorite phrases based on how he's detailing what happens in the book of Acts. That is the strengthening of the disciples. With that strengthening in mind, here are just two reminders I want to leave you with in addition to those four points. The first one, we need to be ready. Be ready no matter the season. Whatever you're up against, idleness is not wasted. We have a God who is working. We don't have to wonder if he is. We just have to wonder how he is. And the more we read this, the clearer idea we'll get on that. 
which leads to the second thing. We can be ready, and the best way to do that is to cling to God's promises. It's not about waiting for the right dream. It's not about waiting for that next round of spiritual goosebumps. It's about opening your Bible and learning how to recognize when that prescriptive truth is at work in your life. We have no right to consider God silent when our Bibles are closed. It's also uh, not about waiting for the right legislation. It's about knowing what God has said, and his words will always mean more than the actions of man. I'd like to show you something real quick, if you want to turn your attention to the screens. This is New York City. Easter weekend, 1956. (laughs) I didn't even think this was real the first time I saw it. I thought it was fake. But it was in the, in the paper. This New York City's been hidden. This world is making its bed and lying in it. Corinth is in ruin. It's gone. The world is going to take the New York City skyline. It will always be deciding what flags are worth waving what values are worth saving. But we know that as far as the east is from the west, Jesus has removed our transgressions and his people can be a beacon of light. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus said to his devout followers, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot, cannot be hidden. We can be this. We can. Would it be nice to return to that version of New York City? Yeah. I think it'd be sweet, personally. We can pray for that. We can vote Christian-principled people into office. But is that our ultimate hope? Is the skyline what we're after? The aim of our charge should not be in becoming a Christian nation. The aim of our charge should be in a nation full of Christians that are showing the love of Jesus Christ to those who need it. Because guess what? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not up against the New York City skyline and whatever people want to put there. We are against the dark powers of this world, the forces of evil in the spiritual realm. We can live in a way that proves it to the people who still need to meet Jesus for the first time. And when they see how we handle being in season and out of season, that picture might become clearer. Do we want the world to change? Yeah. You want the world to change? Start with your neighbors. Not the world on the TV, the world out the window. People need Jesus. Last time I checked, our sign outside says, change lives, change worlds. Not change lights, not change leaders. Election season, recession season, depression season, blessing season, fruitful season, Giving season, taking season, hunting season, football season, whatever is going on, 
It is us and it is him. And we can be ready to have a defense and to proclaim the love of Jesus. Because unreadiness, unreadiness in our spiritual walk might just mean our walk of faith is based on the ever-changing state of affairs. And that's a lot of faith in the wrong thing. Am I saying love this country less? No. But we can love it less than we do the Lord our God. Do I seek to downplay the importance of the 4th of July? No. But we can understand that there is no greater declaration of independence than when Jesus died on the cross saying, it is finished. We need to know the victory. The heart of the gospel message. Whatever season you're in, there's no season as good as now. Believe in him. Because the stories are true. Like we just sang earlier, the empty tomb still speaks. It'll speak louder than anybody else in any position of authority that this world gives. We know where Jesus is and we know what he did for us. We can believe that. Not on our works. On his We aren't working to get the gospel. We're working in response to it. Praise God for the opportunity. Next week, uh, we're going to learn exactly what we are up against and how we can use this message. We're going to see why Paul said what he said to Timothy in those final words, and they'll tie in nicely with the last couple verses of Acts 18 because it all speaks to our here and now in extraordinarily valuable ways. Because here's the deal, I've had people come up to me and tell me, your generation's issue moving forward will be the gender debate. Your generation's issue moving forward will be social justice reform. No, your generation's issue will be technology. Your generation's issue will be the breakdown of the nuclear family, the attack on marriage. That'll be the issue. I think the more things change, the more they stay the same. And next week, we're going to talk about what the issue is, and we're going to see that God's word has it covered. In the meantime, let's celebrate our our freedom this week. And am I referring to burgers and fireworks? You betcha. But even more so, we can celebrate who we are in Christ, and we can build our life on it. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for being a firm foundation in a world that continues to shake. God, it's crazy to believe that this nation has such a short history, but it is experiencing long suffering. God, I pray for everybody in this room that they would respond here shortly in worship out of gratitude for what you've already done as we anticipate what you're going to continue to do. God, over the next 16 to 18 months, this country is going to enter another election season of tension, depression, struggle, discouragement. And whatever happens with our cities, whatever happens with our leaders, I pray we can be a light all the same, that we can show no matter the season, we have the Savior. I pray all this in that Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.